You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. It's truly a blessing to be again here with you all in the house of God and to be able to sing our praises to the one that is worthy of it. It's wonderful to know that the most joy we can find is in the slavery that we have to righteousness, to Christ. The most freedom we will find is in our slavery to Him. And uh, today we'll be touching on the end of the book of Ephesians, this wonderful, powerful letter that Paul writes to the saints in Ephesus. We, are now, we have now gone through 142 verses. 142 verses prior to this one. And uh, they have hit on all kinds of things. I mean, everything, actually. I mean, in Ephesians, you find truth galore. You can find every doctrine that you want to find. It's, it's, uh, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. And uh, including, included in all of these are, uh, I have a list here. It won't be up here, but I'll, I'll rattle them off here for you. The riches we have in Christ, the sovereignty of Christ. We have covered, covered the unity with, to which we must strive. We have spoken about love, about peace. We have spoken about bearing with one another, building the body. We have spoken about realizing the new life that is in us, imitating God as children, submission, obedience, respect, honor, discipline, Paul has provided us with thorough education on correct doctrine and correct practice. In this, he has exhorted and admonished us on how we are to live in submission to Christ and how that brings all the relationships we have in the body of Christ under his submission. As brothers and sisters, husbands and wife, husband and wife, children and parents, and even roles that existed outside the church, such as slave and master, which we went through just last Sunday. But for the next 10 verses, things shift. They shift quite a good amount. Paul sheds light on the active spiritual reality that is around us. These 10 verses allow the words of the previous six chapters to fall on us with the gravity that the Holy Spirit intended. Many of us, including myself, have been exposed to this passage since childhood. It is the passage that speaks about the armor of God. Most of us have seen many photos of the soldier dressed in his armor. Some of us have even held those plastic replicas and fought in Sunday school with them. So we could actually have a good grasp of what Paul is explaining. It would help us visualize what he was saying here. But today, for some maybe unfortunately, but I think fortunately, we're not messing around with plastic toys. Instead, this passage will hopefully remind us that the day we heard the gospel and believed on Christ as our Lord and Savior, we were enrolled in a war that has been raging since creation itself. The consequences are visible everywhere. All over the world we see brokenness, we see pain. What we are witnessing is warfare. This is a spiritual warfare of eternal consequence, and it bleeds profusely into the physical world. Every day we see, we hear, and we feel it. Truth is being subverted. Evil is promoted and justified. Children are being abused in horrible ways. Women are being raped, killed, beaten. The states in which we live allow the brutal murder of hundreds of babies every day, and our healthcare systems sell it to us as a medical procedure. More babies will have been killed or murdered during the course of my sermon today than we have with us in the building today. Sin abounds. But the good news is that grace abounds even more. In our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we have freedom from the yoke of sin and the promise of eternal life. So the passage we have ahead of us reminds us of the battle that rages all around us and requires a response. It requires us to respond. While the memories of this passage in Sunday school are wonderful, they're absolutely wonderful, they're helpful, don't throw them out, keep them. Um, but I believe there's truth of greater consequence here to explore. 
So may God open our eyes and give us strength to stand. So before we start, if I could just lead us in a quick prayer before we get into the reading. Father, we know, we know, Lord, that you are unchanging, that you are all-powerful, and that we serve a God that does not lead us into battles that we cannot win because you have already won them. Father, we praise you, knowing, Lord, that the passage that lies ahead is one in which you desire us to grow and one in which you desire us, Lord, to live out the truths that are in it so that we may be effective soldiers in your kingdom. We ask, Lord, that you would pierce, Lord, our hearts with, the, with this very word, Lord, that it would strike us, Lord, and that we would prepare ourselves for battle every day. We are grateful, Lord, that not only do you teach us how, but you provide the means. So we are grateful in all that you do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going we're gonna to go through the, the passage of Ephesians 6. Uh, this is the last part of the book of Ephesians. It is verses 10 through 24. Uh, but the, what, what, it's, what the sermon is called is stand firm. Stand firm. And you'll notice the reason why it's called stand firm as we read through this passage. Because stand is the word that Paul likes to use three times actually throughout this. So... Uh, Let's go ahead and begin in verse 10. If you can open up your Bibles or just read along with me. The whole armor of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, then I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tishicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from, the God, or from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ, with love incorruptible. I apologize for the uh, stuffiness. Now, before we jump actually into the, the chapter or into these verses themselves, I was hoping to bring us back, bring us back sort of to place us where this is going on. So I want us to give us a, a, the vantage point, right? Paul, at this point, is not a free man. He has arrived in Rome after an arduous journey and was held prisoner in Rome. That is where he writes this letter now and where he actually writes a few of the letters that we have in the New Testament. And this is made clear by the fact that Paul says it himself three times within the book of Ephesians. In chapter 3, in chapter 4, and even in this very chapter at the end, he mentions that he is a prisoner in chains for Christ. Now this alludes back to Acts 28, when we know that Paul, being in Jerusalem, being sent up to the Romans, having to be judged by them, them finding nothing wrong with him, uh, he appealed to Caesar because he didn't know what else to do. Not knowing that actually they were going to set him free. They had nothing else to do, but he appealed to them and they shipped him off to Rome. Of course, all things in God's decrees are for a purpose, and this was for a greater purpose that this happened. 
His appeal to Caesar would have actually been an appeal to Nero. If you know anything about Nero's Rome, its, uh, its persecution of Christians was horrible. And you may be thinking, man, Paul, how was it that, a, that this was a good strategy, appealing to Caesar? But this is all taking place a few years prior to the events that would lead to these horrible persecutions. Now, as a prisoner, Paul was in an interesting situation. He was on a type of house arrest at this point, which would have meant that he had a guard keeping him at his lodging. Paul, as a bold preacher of the gospel, would have had many conversations with the guards that were watching him. These guards were not mere soldiers. They were actually praetorian guards. The ESV has guards, Roman guard, has guards, but uh, the NASB actually says praetorian guards. The, the King James Version says imperial guards, but they all mean the same thing. It is uh, the highest level of guard in Rome. Uh, they were the guys that were taking care of actually Nero himself. They were his entourage, his protective entourage. They were actually uh, treated better. They were paid better. This group of guard had great political influence. So great, in fact, that Nero became emperor because of the Praetorian Guard. His mother had an alliance with a prefect of the Praetorian Guard and had them declare Nero was emperor upon the death of the last emperor. This group not only helped put emperors in power, but executed many as well. They were extremely privileged and were usually given comfortable duties. And having a guard watch a short, visually impaired man who possesses no physical threat would definitely be a more comfortable duty. And uh, no one would have denied that. Now in Philippians uh, chapter 1, verse 12 through 13, I'll read it real quick. Uh, I don't have it listed up here. Uh, Paul writes, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. This is in relation to his imprisonment. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard or praetorian guard. This is where we see those. Actually, it's not written in Ephesians. It's written in Philippians. This is where we see that actual name, imperial guard or praetorian guard. And to all the rest that my, that my imprisonment is for Christ. So his witness is spreading like wildfire. Now I can only imagine Paul must have led some of these guards to Christ through their conversations. How else would he have known the extent of which the gospel witness had spread amongst the imperial guard? He did not have a chance to speak to all of them. This would have meant one or more of the guards believed and were sharing his testimony to the others. Paul is right in saying that it has really served to advance the gospel. At this point, there were possibly more than 10,000 of these praetorian guards, and they protected many of the high-ranking officials in Rome as well. This means that because of his chains, Paul was able to preach the gospel to the guards and through the guards to many, if not all, the highest-ranking officials in Rome. Even Nero himself may have possibly heard the gospel through one of his cards. So this is by no chance, uh, this was the will of God to have him in this situation. The interac the, these interactions must have, had, uh, must have been in great detail, extensive in, uh, communication, because he was with them daily, which allowed him to probe into many areas of being a Roman soldier. His guard was most likely who he spoke with the most. As evidenced by how widespread his testimony was, so widespread that he was told the whole, remember, the whole imperial army knows. That's a lot of people. That he is in chains for Christ. So I want you to imagine that while Paul is writing this passage, specifically these, these next verses, he was not merely pulling from a memory, but that even with his visual impairment, he could look up and see this high-ranking Roman soldier standing guard outside his door, a soldier that by now he would have come to know. So these analogies that we'll be going through that he points out, uh, they're pretty clear to him. They're, he's seeing them physically and understanding them spiritually in, through a spiritual lens, right? So not that we have that in our minds, we can hopefully imagine where Paul is, uh, what he's looking at, right? And we can understand Ephesians the, uh, and these next 10 verses, actually the whole of Ephesians, maybe a little differently. Um, so uh, Ephesians uh, verses 6, 10 through 12, uh, the whole armor of God, right? That's what we started with. And he starts with, finally, 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 
I'm not going to go any further. <laughs> I tricked you guys. Uh, no, uh, finally. Finally, Paul is saying that after reminding you of the power and beauty of the gospel, which he did in the first chapter, and he did it throughout the chapters of Ephesians, and calling for righteous obedience to Christ in this life, this is where my message to you will end. He's saying, finally, this is the end of, the, of his letter. He ends with these words. Be strong. Be strong. In the Lord and in the strength of his mind. But the first two words, be strong, are not something novel. You can imagine every general or every leader prior to a battle saying the first two words of this verse. Be strong. But in what is the question? And Paul answers it. But for the world, they are saying be strong in the physical sense. Remember your training and rely on it. Rely on the strength of your hands, the strength of your intellect, and on your emotional resolve. A praetorian guard, without a doubt, would have had all these qualities. Paul, with a quick glance up, would be able to see all the things, all these things, and that they were present in his Roman soldier that was guarding his home. Rome was not in the business of employing frail men. I was going to say freak men, frail men. He had to be of a, a Roman soldier had to be of at least 17 years old, and he had to be fit for fighting in order to join the Roman army. If you were too short, too old, too young, or in any way inadequate, you would not be accepted. The Roman army was not a charity. They required you to add value to their armed forces, and this has not changed after 2,000 years. All armies proceed this way, and the worst of them don't. The worst of them are the ones that accept everyone, and you know that's the truth, right? The American army to this day, which is the greatest force this world has known, requires you to be of minimal intelligence and fitness to be able to join. What that means is you need to have some raw, intrinsic value that they can make into a proficient soldier. Just like gold, when it is mined from the earth, it has some value. But when it is refined and shaped, it can be made of far greater value. This is where Paul's encouraging starts to differ in that he, encourage us, he encourages us to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. We are to be strong not in ourselves, but in the Lord. What does that mean? It means that no matter how strong physically you may be, no matter how intellectually bright or how emotionally solid and unwavering, you are not prepared for the spiritual battle that lies ahead. Outside of God, you are already a casualty. Ephesians 2 verse 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You have already been conquered. You are a slave to your sin, bound and in darkness. Right? But God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great life, love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. There was never any strength in us to begin with. We were dead in our sins. God gave us our value. Because of his great riches and mercy, we are made alive together with Christ. It is unmerited favor that gives you any value at all. We did not enroll. He chose us and loved us while we were yet dead in our sins. That is why there's clarification here. It is that in, the, in his strength, in the strength of his might, we are to be strong in him. It's a little confusing. Be strong in the, strength of, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. Why? Why is he saying that? He's saying that he provides it all, including the strength to be strong in him. That makes it pretty clear. We have nothing to add. Unlike the Roman soldier that has some raw intrinsic value, we have none of that. He gives us that. So there must be a complete and total reliance on God. This is the first requirement for a strong soldier, a strong Christian soldier in the Lord's army. It is to stand to be strong in the Lord. Paul wisely follows this up with two important words right after that. Put on. While verse 10 makes it clear that our Lord fills all in all, he is the source in its conclusion, we are by no means okay to live life as we want, ignorant of the battle that is raged around us. 
but we must put on the whole armor of God. That implies responsibility on our part. We have something to do, right? But what is also important to recognize here is that even in the whole armor of God, it is stated that it is his armor. It's God's armor. So you are putting on God's armor. Everything is God's, right? So Paul is saying that you have even been given the tools by which you can stand against the schemes of the devil. But you as a deliverer, but you as a believer are responsible to put them on and be prepared. Now preparation is necessary because this is not a battlefield you can walk carelessly through and expect to find yourself standing upright at the end of this life. We must live ready at all times, clothed in his armor. Because your enemy, the devil, is not shooting arrows in the air, hoping that by chance one may strike you, but he schemes. That is to say, he is systematic in his planning, attempting to arrange the perfect moment at which he can pounce and attain his goal. And that goal is your destruction. And the destruction of all that Christ is working through the church in this world. So, what should we do? We need to be sober-minded. We need to be watchful because our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeing, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. That is why we must put on the whole armor, emphasis on the word whole. A Roman soldier would be extremely hard to defeat when his full armor, with his full armor, but if you were to remove even one of the articles of his armor, his chances of victory fall drastically. That is because every piece of armor is of vital importance. There is no question about it. Weakness will be taken advantage of by our enemy. That is why there is only one way a Christian can defend and stay stay standing against the constant onslaught of the enemy. That is to rely upon God completely and to prepare for war daily. So, so far, two points. We need to rely on God completely and prepare for war daily. Now this, now, this war will be revealed in the following verses, verses 12 through 13. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. So what Paul wants to make very clear here is if you have it in your mind that you want to physically forward this kingdom of God, you are already mistaken. Okay? This is not what we are doing. We are not wrestling against flesh and blood. That is because it is not our enemy. No matter how many dictators, drug lords, or human traffickers are killed or incarcerated, another will step in to fill the role. Paul knows this better than most as one of the most zealous persecutor of Christians. Once he came to the saving knowledge knowledge of Jesus Christ, persecution of the church did not diminish or cease. Rather, others continued it and directed it with even more vigor towards him. Sorry. This is because we know that the evil in this world is merely a symptom of the true origin of evil, and that is of a spiritual nature. And yet for some reason, even with this explicit passage, there have been others that have declared physical war in the name of Christ, proclaiming to desire to further the kingdom of God, not by the gospel of peace, which brings life, but by the physical sword, which leaves only death in its wake. That is what happens when our strength is not found in him. When we begin to seek to glorify God through this fleshly means, we put our strength in this. And all that that leads to is idolatry and ultimate destruction. So we know our fight is one of greater consequence. We wrestle against the very powers that motivate the evil and darkness we see around us. These spiritual forces in the heavenly places, they seek to hinder the work of Christ in this world. Now, a wonderful truth is this. They cannot extinguish the power of the gospel. So this is already clear but they seek to diminish its reach and pervert its truth by destroying the witness of the ones that carry it. So that includes you and I. 
Now, Paul has been preparing us for this throughout the last six chapters. The letter to the, to the saints in Ephesus is, in simple terms, a compressed version of basic training. In the first three chapters, our minds and hearts were set ablaze and hardened for Christ, being reminded of the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us, loving us beyond human understanding, and that in him can be found every spiritual blessing, that there is redemption in his blood, forgiveness of all our sin, and that we have, made alive, we have been made alive with him. And in the last three chapters, he has encouraged us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which he called us. That we are no longer bound in our sin, but are able to put off the old self and put on the new self, created in the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. All, the leading, to the, all, all leading to this message, to this point, that we must stand in his strength and prepare for battle. In just four verses, he tells us to stand multiple times and how to remain standing by putting on the whole armor of God. Paul is repeating himself because he sees clearest of all that when he stood for Christ, he became the focus of great spiritual attacks. There is no way around it. If you stand, you will be the focus of your enemy's attacks. While it is true that if you do not stand, no one will seek to knock you down. But this is not the answer. Because it cannot be. It goes against the very nature of a believer. It is not the way that any true follower of Christ will live. We cannot help but stand. This does not flow from a deep sense of loyalty, but rather from a love of obedience. Right? A mark of a good soldier is that he is unswerving in his allegiance to his king. Even in the absence of agreement, he remains loyal. Right? But a follower of Christ does not have this internal struggle because we share the mind of Christ. We find pleasure in doing his will. We do not feel encumbered as David did when Saul placed on him his royal armor that was far too large and felt unnatural because they were not tested yet. But the armor of God that we will be going through very, very shortly, it fits the Christian perfectly and securely. It does not slow the believer under its weight, but frees him to move with even more agility and confidence. Because our obedience to Christ is true freedom. That is where freedom can be found. So let me explain. It's like me telling my daughter that when we get home, not telling, but commanding, I am commanding my daughter, that when we get home, you have to eat some chocolate, play with the baby chicks, because we got some chickens, and after that, you have to let me spin you around the room until we get dizzy. Uh, believe me, I don't have to repeat that. The whole ride home, she'll be buzzing. She won't stop bothering me about it. Uh, she's ready to follow the commands that I have laid down. Uh, that is because my commands are her heart's deepest desire. What is freedom except that the, we have the ability to do that which we desire to do? And in our slavery to Christ we have ultimate and unencumbered freedom. He does not merely give us commands to obey, but gives us a heart and mind to love that which he commands. Now in verse 13, he goes on, Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Paul here may be speaking about the evil day, uh, the day where evil reaches its peak prior to the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he explains what is required. And the requirement is that we can do no less than all that is within our power to do that, so that we would stand firm in battle for our Lord. While this may be the case, it, uh, it is obvious that he has not returned yet, but we are hoping he will return soon and even within our lifetime. But what I'd also like to mention is these evil days, he also mentions prior, in just a chapter prior, that these are evil days in which we live. And let me tell you, today we are still in evil days. That has not changed. There will be times in our lives where we will encounter days that are darker than the rest. And every Christian will also encounter a day that is darkest of all in their life. We may not understand the greater purposes of God in those earthly circumstances, but if we have prepared for the battle, even in those moments, our knees will not buckle and we will progress forward. 
because we can press into him, resting sure, knowing that he holds us, and in him we are able to overcome any obstacle, even death itself, because we stand in him and in the strength of his might. So verse 14, Ephesians 6 verse 14, stand therefore having fastened on, this is where it starts, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So this is how we should stand, he tells us here. Fasten it on, this belt of truth. So firstly, we need to clarify. Uh, he, he makes clear where it should be. We must have this belt of truth around, cinched around us. Not in our hands so that we can beat others with it. Okay? Rather, Paul states, it must be fastened, right? And as we know, this belt would have been fastened around the waist of the Roman soldier. This belt would have kept all of his garments tight to his body so that nothing was flowing in the wind as he ran. All right? The, the image of a Roman soldier and, and flailing things. And, yeah, it wouldn't be good. It would also lower the respect you had for the Roman army. But uh, yes, it would make sure that they would not get snagged or grabbed by the enemy. This belt had a purpose. The belt makes a soldier confident and agile, able to move with ease in any situation. Truth itself has the same effect for a Christian. This truth is not something that finds its origins in the philosophies of man, but rather it is a truth revealed from above. It can only be worn by a follower of Christ as it requires relationship with its author, the maker of that belt. We must know him for it to have its intended purpose, we must know him. And for it to have its intended purpose around the lives around us, this relationship is necessary. Remember, I said that this belt is not intended to be held in our hand so that we can beat others with it. And that is what I believe happened in Acts 19. We're not going to be reading the, reading the passage, but I know you guys know when I say the sons of Sheva, right? You guys know that. These were men that I believe when they walked into this situation, they were claiming Christ, the one that Paul states, right? That Christ that Paul talks about. We rebuke you, we, we you know, they, they want to, they want to uh, uh, exercise these demons by a power that they do not put their trust in, right? So this is the issue. These demons quickly noticed that they had the truth without relationship to its author. With spiritual eyes, these demons could see that these men came for battle with a belt in their hand. And when warfare actually began, they dropped it. They dropped that belt and ran away beaten and naked. Horrible. And this is what happens, unfortunately, many times, many times when the church is persecuted. We see that many that had not cinched their belts, but rather had become very good at displaying it. When trial came, they dropped it quicker than a hot tray of bacon. The truth is held by many in their hands, but it is only cinched on the waist of the one who has received it and believes it. Just as the belt on a Roman soldier was not the prettiest or most visible part of his outfit, it was the most fundamental, upon which all other tools would hang. And similarly, as a Christian, this truth is not visible at first glance. But when we look beneath our worldview, we find a strong and sure foundation that keeps, up from bending, that keeps us from bending and swaying with every wind and storm. That truth is found in Scripture, which is all a giant billboard pointing to the, that ultimate truth of Jesus Christ. The truth is not an idea, it is a person. Philosophers and thinkers for over 2,000 years have attempted to tear down this truth and it remains just as sure as the day that it was completely revealed to us in Christ. So what I would say is if you're merely displaying this truth, I would beg on you to put, it, to put your trust in it because your fate will be worse than what happens to the sons of Shkeva. It will be eternal separation from the very one that came to secure our salvation. So please, Put your trust in him today. Now we move on to the breastplate of righteousness. This breastplate 
was there for a reason, and that is to protect all the vital organs. Without this piece of metal, or actually it could have been many pieces of metal that were bound together, a soldier would be asking to get a mortal wound. Um, if you go into battle without this thing, any little stab or anything, I mean, it's, it's going right through you. Hitting an organ, hitting, hitting a liver, hitting a heart, hitting a lung. I mean, all these, essentially, I mean, vital organs can be hit way too easily. And here Paul tells us that we must stand having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Once again, he says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. How do we put on this breastplate of righteousness? Isn't this something that God imputes to us? Why would Paul ask us to put this on if it is already given? It is because this righteousness that can only be, it can only be attained uh, by living within the standards of God. This is not that righteousness that God gives us, but it is a righteousness that we must live in. And Paul talks about it, and uh, it's mentioned many times, right? It is the righteousness of which he mentions in 1 Timothy for an overseer, that he must be above reproach, right? It is as Paul already said in chapter 5, that we are to look carefully how we are to walk, not as unwise, but as wise, being imitators of God. Without this type of righteousness, your witness will be greatly diminished. As has already been explained, our enemy cannot quench the gospel, but he can attack the, attack the one that carries it, and therefore diminish its reach. And this is exactly what's being mentioned here. We must live in a way that does not give the enemy grounds to dismiss the truth that we carry. And this breastplate gives us that ability. It is something that we must do, that we must daily choose to live our lives in a righteous manner, above reproach, so that when we witness to others, they would hear it without looking at us and saying, oh, he's done this, he's done that, how can I trust you, right? It just tarnishes it. Now we move on, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 15. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. The Roman soldier of that time would have been made, uh, the shoe of that Roman soldier would have been made of leather, bound around the foot and around the ankle, and it would have all these hobnails placed into its bottom. These hobnails uh, would help to protect from wear and from anything that would seek to pierce through and damage the sole of the foot, right? Similarly, the shoes of the gospel of peace make one ready for whatever circumstance comes ahead. This gospel is appropriate for any terrain of heart, for any terrain of heart that it may come into contact with. It is appropriate for all peoples and is intended to reach every corner of this earth where man exists. And it will never lose its strength or power. It never needs to be changed or repaired. Right? So uh, this is a, a special type of shoe, for sure. These also, on a Roman soldier, would have caused quite a lot of sound. As the soldiers were walking in formation, uh, it would have struck fear, fear into the hearts of, of the enemies of Rome. As thousands of Roman foot soldiers marched toward them, you would hear the clanking of these little tiny metal nails hitting the floor, thousands of them. The sound of pain and death rang loudly as the march went forward. You would hear them coming before you would see them. While the gospel message spreads like a wildfire, it rings loudly, but it does not ring loudly with death and suffering and pain. It rings loudly in a different way, right? It spreads the message of hope. It brings peace and unity. It promises redemption. And those that hear it and believe will have eternal life and joy in Christ. And it mercifully gives truth to those that do not respond in telling them that outside of Christ, your only hope is eternal damnation. Finally, you could always tell where a Roman foot soldier would go as those hobnails would leave impressions in the dry ground as they walked. Similarly, the shoes we are given of the gospel of peace, they leave permanent impressions behind them upon the heart of those with which we share it. One thing is for sure, that is that when one looks back upon the life of a soldier of God, you will see the imprints of the gospel pressed upon all those 
with whom he came in contact with. Not all may have believed, but all have been marked by it. We must wear these daily so that in any circumstance, the gospel will ring loudly both through the way we speak and our actions. It makes us ready. It makes us ready to go when, when the time comes. Ephesians 6 verse 16, or chapter 6 verse 16. We move on. In all circumstances, this is a little different. He said, put on. He's, he's, this is a little different. In all circumstances, he says, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Now this, the Roman shield that a, a Roman guard would have held or a Roman soldier, legionnaire, would have been fairly large and it would, uh, it would have provided great protection. I mean, it was, it was pretty huge. Um, it was made of pieces of wood, flat pieces of wood that had been bent, uh, that actually had been maybe even nailed together, and then it would press down together. And this pressing would form its shape. It, uh, it would help protect you against direct fire. If, if, uh, if the soldier would kneel before it, it would almost cover all of him, right? If, uh, if anything was coming from above, if he held it above it, it would cover his whole silhouette. It was that large. So uh, this, is de- this type, of, this type of, of, of shield is more than adequate if, let's say, there was an onslaught of flaming arrows that were coming your way, right, which Paul talks about from the evil one. And this curved nature of that shield, it was actually rectangular in shape and had a curved nature, uh, allowed that even when these projectiles were thrown at you, they would be, you know, they would go to the left or to the right. That, that energy would, would be sent in another direction in comparison to having a flat shield where you take that full brunt, right, of force. Now, uh, these, these uh, rectangular large shields were useful because while they provided great protection for one, they provided even greater protection for many. So what I mean by that is that when you have all these Roman soldiers together with these massive things, with these massive shields, I don't know why I keep forgetting the little shield. <laughs> but yeah, they, could, they would do certain um, <clears throat> formations in which they would have a lot of protection when they were trying to go forward against a wall or against an enemy that was on higher ground. They could put these on top of one another, overlapping, providing almost complete protection so that when something was thrown, it would come down. Almost like those terracotta roofs that you see. I think they're terracotta. Those orange roofs. Yeah, they interlock and they have this conical shape or cylindrical shape. So they were very useful, extremely protecting. Um, Our shield of faith is actually an even more perfect covering. And we see that here by what Paul says in verse 16. As Paul states, it is able to extinguish not most, but all of the flaming darts of the evil one. Faith is what allows us to head into any battle knowing that our strength does not lay in overlapping pieces of wood, but it rests in the creator of the universe. While faith to believe is a gift from God, faith to proceed is practiced. We already have it. We have been given it when we first believed, but it can be strengthened in practice. This faith is to know that we do not fight a war as the world does by seeing the hill which we wish to conquer and preparing a strategy for victory and then heading into the battlefield and implementing it. But actually, we are able to look up at every moment in the battle and see that our Lord is already victorious on the hill. We must only have faith to proceed in the path that that He has already paved. And He has provided for all our needs during this battle. So, uh, totally different warfare here. You may have the best general the world has ever seen and the wisest king wiser than King Solomon himself. But there has never been and will never be a king that defeats his enemy prior to calling his army to battle. He does not need our strength to retain his power. We need his strength to fight this battle. He has already won. So that's why he can say, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Because he is all. Verse 17. 
Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. This, um, this helmet, the helmets that Roman soldiers would have worn, if we look at the Roman soldiers first, would have ranged based on rank. They had the, the regular ones that would cover, they'd be tied around with some cloth at the bottom, and you also had the centurions or, or the higher-ups, even the praetorians. They believed that they had that really cool Greek thing on top, you know? Um, you could tell, you could tell that is a high-ranking Roman official just by walking. And when you would see him, it would, it would be above the crowds. And these guys were not short, as we talked about. They were some large men. Uh, so these, uh, these helmets would range based on rank. But unlike the Roman, the Roman soldiers, Christ is impartial. We that are his have been given the same certainty of our salvation. Our helmets are all alike, and they are all stained in the blood of our Savior Jesus, in whom we have been given salvation. This is not a piece of armor that is put off and on. It is given and taken, right? Once he gives, we take. It is not something that can be forgotten. It makes, it makes one sure that no matter what may happen, his blood is sufficient to wash away all of our sins. While there may be times in life we may find ourselves improperly dressed for battle and may walk away limping and injured, we are not defeated. There is one thing that still remains that helmet. It's still on us. His blood is still sufficient for our salvation. Salvation is a helmet because it must always be on our mind. This is what keeps us from falling back into relying wholly on our own strength because it is a constant reminder of the cross. This type of battle and any other or for any other soldier uh, would bring them to, to freeze. Uh, we already know actually what it brings them to. It brings them to death. Uh, they, are, they are dead before they're even able to fight. But if they were able to actually see this battle, they would be unable to move. In an instant, they would become a target. And guaranteed defeat is what awaits them. And we see this is true on all those that try to fight it outside of Christ. But the, help, the helmet of salvation, it keeps us going. Now why? Why does it keep us going? What's, what's, what's the thing about this? It is the reason a Christian can fight and stand in this battle, unlike the world, that puts their strength in their physical prowess, intellectual ability, emotional resolve, finding themselves a casualty, right, as we said, before they can even begin to fight. But we, having this salvation, when we are first exposed to the cross of Christ, there is a traumatic shift to the core of our humanity. It annihilates the ego. It confounds our intellect and leaves us emotionally shattered. We realize that for our sin, he died. The King of kings and Lord of lords loved us, and when he came, we spat on him. This realization causes great trauma in anyone that comes to see it. Now, this great trauma, rather than crippling us, uh, it actually gives us unwavering resolve to serve him in our hearts. That is why in suffering, the church actually grows. They have tried every form of torture in an attempt to traumatize those that carry the gospel from carrying it. But rather than succeeding, it pushed the gospel forward with more fervor and with more power. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of exposure therapy, right? Someone comes to a um, psychologist, and they have a fear of something. And that psychologist says, okay, we'll do baby steps. First, you'll get this far, right, to it, then you'll get this far to it, and you'll become more comfortable as you get nearer to it, right? And once you get finally nearer to it, you can actually do it. You'll try to do it once. You may fail, but uh, you'll do it again until you feel so comfortable that the fear erodes, it disappears. There's no more fear, right? And we actually see this exposure therapy, this is what I believe this, this helmet of salvation is. It's an exposure to something greater than anything else we can be exposed to. Uh, if you think about David and Goliath, uh, David, when he, was, uh, when he came to the field, and uh, when he came to the field of war, right, there were two groups of people, the Philistines and the Jews, and these Jews were quaking. These Jews were quaking because they had seen what lies ahead of them in the battle. 
And with, just like us, without Christ, we, we have no chance. And they knew they had no chance. This Goliath that stood in there. And when David came, uh, instantly he said, Who is this that defiles the name of our Lord? Like, this is unacceptable. I'm going to go take out this guy. This little scrawny, this little scrawny guy, the youngest of all of his brothers, um, goes and uh, he wants to fight the greatest of the Philistine, the Philistine uh, soldiers. Now, why is this interesting? It is because when he's asked, uh, do you know what you're doing? This is a big deal. Uh, he's like, hey, listen, I've already fought a lion and a bear, and I've been victorious. Goliath is going to be no different. This is exposure therapy. He has already been exposed to greater threats and come out successful. He does not fear. He has already been, he has already been exposed to the power of God in combat. He knows God is with him. He will be successful. And this is, this is what happens uh, with, with the experience of seeing Christ crucified spiritually of experiencing the pain and then seeing, uh, and then also experiencing that redemption and love. There is no greater, no greater thing we will face in this world, no thing more traumatizing than that, that the perfect Son of God would be nailed to a cross for our sin. So when we look upon this battlefield, there is nothing scarier, nothing, nothing worse that we can view and isn't that, isn't that wild that we know that even in the worst of circumstances throughout this world, who are the first to go? It's the Christians to provide aid, to help those that are suffering, right? We are the first because what we have been exposed to is far more evil. It, it is exposure therapy to the utmost. So now whatever battle comes our way, there is no doubt. He has already won. He is victorious. He has given us he has given us the way to defeat all the sin that is in our lives if we would just walk in Him. This is that helmet of salvation. You must remember it daily. This war is fought in the shadow of the cross, right? With our, lives, with our eyes planted on, on the light of His resurrection, right? Now, finally, we have arrived to the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The sword that a Roman soldier would have carried uh, would have been called the gladius, and Paul would have seen many during his imprisonment. These were short swords that allowed maneuverability and agility and, and uh, allowed them to be able to use it with their left or their right hand, right? And if a Roman soldier drew this thing out, uh, not good. He's ready for battle. And if it's pointed towards you, even worse, uh, because all that it brings is suffering and pain. So this sword is... Not, not, a, not, a good, uh, not a good thing. Now, the sword of the Spirit is different in that it does not bring with it death, but rather reveals it in our lives, right? Because the Word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, and it pierces to the division of the soul and of the Spirit, to the joints and of the marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The sword of the Spirit is so sharp I mean, it's sharp, so sharp that in fact, it can do what men have spent their whole lives trying to do. That is trying to know themselves. This sword is able to pierce to the core of who we are and can reveal the deepest thoughts and intentions of our heart. It leaves us bare, raw, and open. It reveals to us that we are spiritually diseased and makes it clear that we need more than healing. We need to be made new. And it presents all those with who, with who it comes into contact with, with the answer for that depravity, Christ. The sword of the Spirit is also explained as living and active. It does not rely solely on the proficiency of the holder to be used correctly. The sword of the Spirit must be known by relationship with the one that forged it. Why? Because it is His. It is the Spirit's sword. It is the Spirit of the living God that will give you the ability to use that that sword of the Spirit. We as Christians have all been indwelt by that Holy Spirit and therefore are able to wield this sword. The sword of the Roman functions only when it is submitted to his will, but the sword of the Spirit functions best when we submit to its authority and let it do the work. 
right? It does not need to be sharpened because it holds its edge perfectly. It is so sharp and hardened that we as Christians are encouraged to sharpen one another with it. It does not rust, corrode, or bend, but remains eternally true and unblemished with a mirror-like finish that we, as, as the bearers, are able to look in and reveal our own chinks in our armor. All of these together make the perfect Christian soldier. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the readiness of the gospel, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit. And then Paul moves on, and he clarifies how we are to progress in this war. 18 through 20. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me, and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in change. This is the third time he said it. I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. The most important part of war is communication. We must be able to hear the voices of our leaders on the battleground. Fortunately for us, we have direct communication with our Lord and Commander through prayer, and that prayer is done in the Spirit. This prayer is essential. It is essential. Now, I have already, I have already said what I will say next before, but I think it, it bears repeating. It is a, it is a, a uh, explanation of what prayer is. Okay? Prayer is where relationship is built with our Lord and where obedience is displayed. It is where you are emboldened to fight and where we are conditioned to sacrifice. It is where we are sustained through suffering and radicalized for our King. Prayer is where the, desire of the, world, the desires of the world are severed and where the shackles of darkness are shattered. Prayer is not supplementary but elementary to our Christian walk. Prayer is foundational. It is the bowing of the soul in worship to our King and Creator. Prayer is not merely another tool with which we head into battle, but in prayer, the rest, uh, in prayer, it is where we find our spiritual pulse. The spiritual pulse of the soldier is found in prayer, and those that fight alongside him as well. Prayer is what brings the natural face-to-face with the supernatural. And as Ravenhill says, or said, he's gone now, prayer grasps eternity. Now there is no substitute. It is how the front line of the gospel advances. And we must sustain it, and we must sustain one another. We must sustain ourselves and one another in it. Paul is leading by example, showing that there is never a time that we must be confident in ourselves, no matter how deep you are in the enemy's territory and how experienced you are in spiritual warfare. One must, always, one must always remember that our strength is in the Lord. And that is why Paul himself requests supplications be made on his account that words may be given to him to proclaim the mystery of the gospel with boldness. That's wild. This juggernaut in Christianity still relies on God for every word that he will preach. We must be the same. Now Paul, prior to his benediction, right? Well, actually, let, let's end this part out, right? We know that we as Christians now have three things. We have standing in the strength of God. We have preparing every day for battle. And the last is see, pray without ceasing. That is the last of it, pray without ceasing. Now, Paul, prior to his benediction, writes to the Ephesians, letting them know that, hey, I'm sending Tychicus, a faithful minister in the Lord. Um, And this would have calmed their doubt of the letter's origin, but also would have made them happy because they knew him. And Tychicus would have been able to spread with them the state in which Paul was. So he ends by saying, hey, just know this is who's coming, and and I'm going to send my letter with him. There's no doubt it comes from me. And at that point in history, um, I believe there were already fake letters being sent, and they needed to make sure this was from Paul himself. Um, so this would have been a way that that would, have, that would have helped him. And they could have asked all kinds of questions that would have calmed their fears of what Paul was going through. And Paul ends with his benediction in Ephesians uh, 23 and 24. He says, Peace be to the brothers 
and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. He wishes them peace, love, faith, and grace. Every gift, every wonderful gift that there is tale. And not only that, but he repeats love three times. The gift that we know, without, we are useless. So love, with a love incorruptible. A wonderful benediction. And I want to end with one last thing. Now that he has, he has also ended his letter, I want to end my sermon. This battle will continue to rage, and we will remain on this battlefield to our last breath or until Christ returns, whichever comes first. And that is why we must always remember these three truths. Our strength is in God alone. We must prepare daily for battle, and in all we do, we must pray without ceasing. Amen? So peace to you all, love, faith, and grace. Amen? God bless you. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.